Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is episode 210, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder in the Arts. Now I say the arts for the show because besides talking about writing, which I have a direct involvement in, in terms of uh, uh, PTSD and, and, and writing, but also uh, we'll talk about examples of other fields of the arts where this is a, where this has become a, a, an issue uh, for the good and for the bad. Okay. Now, what exactly is uh, what's called a post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, basically, it is symptoms that you have because of either four things. Okay, either um, you had a traumatic event and, and, and you relive it later on. It's what they, you know, in the parlance, call a flashback. Or you uh, now feel um, this this post stress because uh, there are certain things in your life, uh, as you know, you pass this event years later that you're trying to avoid, and and that winds up really reducing the quality of your life. Because I mean, I give you an example. If you had a, let's say you had an incident where you were in a horrible accident inside a public bus. Well, you know, maybe for the rest of your life, this is if you allow this to continue. Uh, buses are not exactly on your Christmas card list, okay? You're, you're not high-fiving them like, yeah, I can't wait to get on another one, because no. And, in fact, for some people, it could literally, what they call trigger, you know, that stress where you feel anxious, you feel uh, exhausted, you feel uh, stressed out, you feel closed in, and sometimes it might even relive parts of the entire incident that you remember just because you saw a bus. Or it could be uh, anything uh, of an event that was traumatic, whether it be a hurricane or a tornado. A lot of tornado victims have this, incredibly enough, especially if they came really close to dying for one, where the sound of a turbine engine is similar to the, the sound of a tornado. Tornadoes literally sounds like a horrible train from hell. That powerful, fast, screeching kind of sounds, it's, it's incredible. And when you hear it, it's something that you will never forget. So that could that could spark something in people and trigger something. Okay, um, many a times people will simply have a, a, a dream of sorts, maybe even a nightmare. But either a dream or a nightmare that bring parts of that back, or maybe even again, just like in the uh, in the daytime or in the conscious time, where something you saw reminded you or triggered it. It could also happen that something you might have in a regular basic positive dream could now trigger something that becomes a nightmare. So you have the both worlds, the conscious and the unconscious, where something can bring that back, okay? And then there'll be other times, just when you've had a bad day, you've had a stressful day, you, you just had a day where it doesn't feel that, you know, you, you, you have your best defenses up, or it feels like your best defenses are wore down from all the crap you've had that day. That could sometimes breach things 
that you put to the side. But the biggest problem, particularly in the arts, but people in general who have PTSD is they need help. They need to go through some form of therapy. We'll talk about that. Or even possibly, and I'm not a big advocate for this, and I certainly don't have an agenda or an axe to grind here one way or the other. Some instances, uh, some four to miles antidepressant could be necessary, even on a temporary basis. But I'm not a giant advocate for that. I like to explore other things before we go to uh, the pharmaceuticals, mainly because where it comes, it comes to this, the, the PTSD, there are simply more things that you can do to address it that don't require pharmaceuticals. And as you know anything about the show, if you know anything about me, what I've talked about and all kinds of issues, I'm not fond of shortcuts. I don't advocate spending $5 more at the gas station when you can spend $5 less at the supermarket. But Mark, it's a three-mile additional drive, okay? That's the battle of life, whether you want to waste time or you want to waste money. And sometimes you do both. I say, why waste money? I say, why not a little bit more time? You might actually find something new in the store that can be an advantage to your life or, or, or to your budget. You're not going to find anything like that at the gas station because it's all steered against you. They get the most money out of you because they know you're not coming back very often. So they're going to get you all the time. Why allow that? I'm surprised they don't have a sign out there. Uh, we have gas and many ways to screw you. I mean, because it would be a more honest <laughs> of who they are than anything else. But I digress here. All right. It has to be dealt with. You do need help. And in many instances, it could be a lifelong thing. Sort of like alcoholism in the sense that you might not be drinking anymore. I mean, I've known people that have been off the wagon, so to speak, for 35, 50 years sometimes. But it doesn't mean they need to not go to meetings. It doesn't mean that they don't have days where things could push them that way. They need to make a phone call you know, to uh, um, a sponsor, as they call it, or, you know, in the PTSD, sometimes it's just a matter of somebody that's an advocate for you. This is similar to a sponsor that can help you talk through things so you're not running off to do anything uh, silly or you don't let it become more and more of an aggravating thing. I mean, there's nothing worse than having an event like this, and then you got to calm yourself down from it, get yourself back to normal, and the next morning you have a presentation to give at work. You know what I mean? Or you got an important test to take at school. You know, I knew a firefighter that was dealt with this, and I can't, I can't even imagine this, but I'll tell you the story uh, simply enough. Um, he got this, and it happens to a lot of firefighters, which is the reason why suicide rates are, are high in, in firefighting. You know, they're not high that, you know, like half the department is killing itself or something, but it's high enough to that you be concerned. But the reason why is because lots of people don't want to get help. Firefighters are one of those. And this fellow, uh, he had a, a, a traumatic uh, situation in a fire that, because I don't know if you know anything about fires, I don't care how much training you have, how much of a he-man you are, how muscular you are, how powerful you are, how great and courageous you are, not everything is going to solve your situation. Things are fluid. Uh, I don't even want to use the word fluid in a fire, but in the sense that things can happen that you can't train on. You have to react. You have to do everything you can from your skill and your, and your training, but also you have to be cognizant of everything around you. And even with all that, that bad things can happen. People die all the time in fires and in firefighters rescuing other people. Well, he had a situation where he was able to rescue somebody. And 
He went through hell and back to be able to do so. Barely getting out alive with himself and the person. Okay? Both of them wound up receiving burns. Both of them survived. But he never really realized that, let's say, I don't know, I think he told me it was less than six months into, into this happening to him, that he was having a problem. That his life outlook had changed and he didn't realize it. He didn't realize that he was a little bit more grim than he used to be. That he was less talkative and less, um, I guess you could say humorous like he used to be. Uh, that um, to his family and to his friends, he seemed a little bit distant and he just didn't see himself. For the short term, they gave him the room which you should always do with somebody in this situation, okay? You don't literally want to come to somebody who has an event like that way, you know, 14 hours later. Uh, you know, dude, I, I think you need to get some psychological counseling. I mean, it's it might be true, but it's not the moment. you got to give people room to sort of gather everything in and, and, you know, see where they're going. Well, sometimes, unfortunately, that room can go on longer than people would expect or even realize. And sometimes... Not in this guy's case, but in other people's cases, they could put on a wonderful show temporarily so that people are like, hey, everything seemed great. That's the reason why you hear people all the time say that. Man, I can't believe he just hung himself. He's, I, I've talked to him maybe five, six times this week. He seemed fine. We went out, we shot some golf, we had a drink, this and that, blah, blah, blah. That people, when they, people say that, they're not making it up. They're not being jerks about it. They're not being blind to it. It's just that sometimes people can put on a good show. And, you know, unless you really, really know them deeply enough to understand that that is a show and that you'll be concerned, you're going to let it go. I mean, what are you going to tell somebody? Hey, man, I'm glad you brought a beer. I'm glad we're having this time here. But, you know, I think you're on the edge of suicide, and I'd like to be able to get you over to somebody. Okay? Even if that means you stay over at my place tonight, stay and I'll, I'll check you out, make sure you're okay, and we'll get over the first thing in the morning and go over to someplace. Uh, nobody does that, okay? <laughs> Would be nice, probably save a lot of people's lives, but we're not trained for that. Most of us are not even brave enough to say something like that, even if we suspect it. But guess what? Lots of people, they don't even suspect it. That's why when you hear that sort of stuff in the news and in interviews and stuff, you can take it to be the gospel. and People not being... You know, purposeful jokes about it. They, they just didn't know. And the person didn't cry out. Not everybody that that has suicidal thoughts are out there crying out. A lot of times they don't say nothing. Too, it's too late. So he didn't realize this. And then, what had happened was, he realized a couple months into it, when he went to fight a fire. Now, the fire he, he fought the first time after this horrible event wasn't all that big and bad. wasn't life or anything. It was just a commercial building, you know, a bunch of equipment in there, you know. So you're not going to go in there with the same type of urgency as the people are in there. You might not take the same kind of risks. I'm not saying firefighters are sitting there saying, I don't care. It's a commercial building. Let it burn out. He got insurance. They don't say that, and they don't think that. But if there's not life involved... You know, they're going to obviously take take advantage of that situation, go about it in a different way, to do the best they can to contain it and, and, and do what they can do. But, you know, nobody wants to give up their life, for, you know, for a tractor or something, <laughs> okay? It's not the same thing as a person. So he went through one of those, and he felt a little anxious. He, he Nothing unusual. He, he blew it off. 
He got a couple of fires that way where they simply didn't involve anybody. It was just buildings and stuff. A couple even that were false alarms. But he noticed something, but she put to the side. But he still noticed it, that every time that bell rang, every time he had a suit up to go out there, he did not feel the same that he used to before that one traumatic event. When he finally got to a fire, I think he said it was like, maybe like almost a year later, that involved people and urgency and life and death and all of that stuff. He said he had problems even getting through to do his job, let alone saving somebody. He had all kinds of things. Things came back to him. He almost hesitated in some instances. In one instance, he was just sort of like stood there for a moment. Things that are dangerous in that kind of line of work. You can't be doing stuff like that. You know, you make one mistake, one second, and, and you could be hitting the head with a, you know, a, a giant uh, piece of timber from the from the roof, or an explosion can happen, or or you might have missed that person to, to grab them in time, for them, and then they die. All those things could be on you. So it's not a job to have those kind of problems. It was at that point he realized when he got over it that he reported to the um, to the station's captain that that was an issue now, and that he thought he needed to see some help. He did so, and he was able to work through that. Um, it's it's a lifelong thing. Don't get me wrong. You don't have the same kind of intensity and problems that that man had when you go through some therapy and you go through some talking with people and you, and you start looking for the signs and you work through it. It won't be the same. It, it's sort of like a psychological scar. You know, you know it's there, but it's not going to hurt or feel the same as it you know did years before because you've dealt with it the best you can. And, 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 you know, to the credit of that station and that captain, they took it seriously and they didn't give the guy a hard time. That, that's one of the reasons why a lot of those firefighters wind up committing suicide because sometimes they're in such a macho environment where nobody wants to say anything. They don't want to sound weak. They don't want to appear that they're not going to be reliable, especially if you've got a partner and, and that partner is, is now wondering, I don't know, man, i got to go into a fire with this dude and he's telling me he's seeing, like, you know, visions at night. <laughs> You know, I guess that would make anybody nervous. But a lot of that stuff could be stereotypes. A lot of that stuff can be paranoia. And sometimes the people that have these feelings, they don't realize that in, in many ways they harm the other folks that do have that situation because it makes them not want to seek help to the point that they wind up destroying themselves or maybe do something reckless in their, you know, in their job fields, which, of course, is never a good thing. Now, you've noticed, if you haven't already, that I know something about this because I was in the military, and you know I've had some uh, I've had some issues and, and, and some traumas that I've had to deal with while I was in the service, and I wind up doing it with my own writing therapy. We'll talk about that as well as other things that people can address this, but also afterwards when I was able to go to VA and, and have a more um, up to front conversation about it because in the military I was I was in the very same situation as those firefighters were in, in many instances where. You know, they'll, they'll yank you out of your job. They'll take away your security clearance. You know, the next thing you know, you're working at the post office for the next four and a half years until your enlistment's done. I mean, your career is pretty much over. They're always going to think of you as somebody weird and somebody suspect and somebody that they have to be concerned about. So, I mean, you're going to be literally locked in a postal room or locked in some office someplace or something. You know, no one's really going to ever take you seriously. That's, that's the kind of life you would have if you said something which is also the reasons why lots of people in the military also commit suicide. 
Unlike police or firemen, the military rate of suicide is very high, high enough statistically that it's noticeable and incredibly tragic. And it's because of the, the kind of macho atmosphere that, that's been contributed to that. It, it causes people to put that to the side, to not deal with it, or in many cases not even try to seek any kind of help at all. Now, I can understand, because don't get me wrong, I'm not going to defend people that have concerns about this, but there are some job fields that, yeah, you have to have a concern. You know, you, you get an air traffic controller one day that says, listen, I'm dealing with this right now, and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not the insensitive type. Remember, I'm, I'm on your side there, you know, dear sufferer of post-stress situations. But, no, you shouldn't be directing air, air traffic. No, you shouldn't. And and whether you can again or not, well, that's going to be up to the, to the professionals and, and whatever they can discover, if they can help you. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But in the meantime, no, you, you shouldn't. There's certain things you shouldn't be doing. Of course not. So I understand that there's some realistic you know, expectations and also there are some uh, legitimate fears. So it's never a good idea to dismiss them. That's one of the problems that we have many a times when you're dealing with people uh, with uh, with these mental Ill illnesses, uh, remember that uh, PTSD is a form of mental illness. Okay, it, and that's uh, in itself is such a loaded term these days that people get so excited about. But it is, and because of that, we have to keep in mind that yeah, we got to do whatever we can to handle our situation, and we got to do whatever we can to try to make sure in public that it's not a stigma. Well, mental illness, unfortunately in many countries, particularly in America, is still a stigma. You know, they, they talk all day long here on the news and in the communities and everything else about, you know, I'm black and people discriminate against me and I'm gay and people discriminate against me and they have no idea at all uh, the stigma that's really out there for people who have to deal with mental illness. It's beyond anything that any of these other groups can ever imagine. Nobody would go as far with those groups as they will with mental illness, where you got like 50,000 different terms for people. He has a screw loose, you know, he's wacky, you know, he's nuts. I mean, they have a thousand different terms. And people say these things in parlance, not even realizing that they're hurtful, that they're stereotypical, that they're not even accurate, you know? Because guess what? When you have this situation, when something traumatic happens to you, you didn't ask for it. You wasn't genetically born with it. No one gave it to you. It happens because of a traumatic event. And not even everybody even that happens to. Sometimes people have traumatic events and this doesn't happen to them at all. But the ones that do, they didn't ask for it and they still now have to deal with it. And imagine how to deal with that and then you got to deal with a world that just, they have a, a, a million terms for you. Now we understand both in the artistic world and of course in the medical world that having post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't mean you're crazy. These people are not off their rocker. Another one of those wonderful terms, okay? They're just dealing with a situation on that mental illness spectrum, if you want to call it, you know, and, and it's something that they can work with. They can, they can overcome for it to be managed. Um, I don't believe it could be erased. I believe it's a, a number one of those conditions that it, it, it's not going to be erased, but it can be managed in the sense that you know it's there, but you know how to handle it. You know that things through therapy, when we'll talk about that, there's a couple different kinds out there where it'll help you understand what you're feeling, what you're dealing with, how you can be in life situations that might remind you of that, but you can still work it through it. 
where it's not affecting you very much. It might still affect you, but it's not going to affect you that it's going to stop your performance. It's going to mess you up when you're driving your kid to school or something. Or it's going to hurt you at work. You know, or it's going to mess up your, your love life or, you know, or, or you're dating or something. You know, it's it's not like you're, you're telling this wonderful girl you just met, hey, listen, I need about 10 minutes. I got a flashback coming, and then I'll come back and we'll talk about this, uh, you know, uh, romantic uh, evening we're having. Uh, no. It's not like any of that at all. But it's still serious enough that people, if they don't take it serious, if they don't try to get it managed, if they're not seeking some kind of therapy, if they just want to live in denial or, worse, live in fear because there are a bunch of jerks out there, well, it, it hurts them even further to where it could become something full-blown, where it can literally launch you into some kind of depressive state, where literally some people will feel that suicide is the only option because they feel that they can't get this resolved, they don't want to do anything about it because they don't really want to talk about it because it hurts even more, they don't want nobody else to know about it, you know, I, I knew a girl one time that was, was raped when she went on a vacation. She decided to do a vacation on herself. She just thought she earned that right to go out there and explore the world. And she had a couple of drinks at a bar. And I think somebody slipped in one of those, those horrible drugs. You know, these, these cowards that do things like this. And, and she was raped. Next, you know, she finds herself in some place she don't even know where the hell it's at. You know, and all she could do. I guess probably in, in the practical fashion of things was to try to put herself back together, get herself medically checked out over there, and went on with her vacation the best she can. Went home pretending like it didn't happen. But she was raped. It happened. And for the longest time, never told her family and friends, uh, uh, avoided dating and doing anything like that for a while, because... Like anything, you think you need some space, you think you need some time, you think you need some room. But, you know, space, time, and room, you know, that, that moves from, from minutes to months to years. And your life is literally going away because you're stuck in an event like that. Until she finally meets a guy that, wow, she likes, wow, that's interesting, wow, this is the person I want to be. And, and suddenly she's looking to throw that away because... She's just frightened to death, realizing that she still hasn't dealt with anything yet. Practically commits suicide until this, this young man, you know, stops her. He decides to visit her one time and, and, and literally discovers where she was heading and convinced her to go and get help. And eventually they convinced her to talk to her family. And that started her road to recovery. And uh, not all of these things have a happy ending. I wish they all did. I wish I was a happy ending kind of guy. Because, hey, I don't mind that happy ending myself, okay? But for her, it did have a happy ending. She wound up marrying that man. And she wound up becoming an advocate to help people in this situation. And I'm just thankful she met him. It was a blessing. And he literally saved her life. And she was uh, go on to have a master's degree and go on to have a, a, a great marriage with children and go on to help the world. Because that's literally what she did. But, I mean, she, I think she dealt with a couple of years of that. Just hell. That's how these sort of things can happen. 
did she deserve this? Of course not. You know, so that's why I never understand that the stigma that's out there. What are you afraid of? And why would you be afraid of someone like that? A girl for whom no fault of her own. So that's that's how we have to view these things, and, and not only a fair, you know, an honest way, but also a, I feel in a direct way, so that they can be handled. Now, there are a couple of real therapies that can work out there for people in, in this situation. Okay, and we're going to talk about those uh, right now. Okay, uh, the first is called. Oh no! Yeah, I have it written down. There we go. Okay, uh, cognitive processing therapy, okay? It's when you learn skills to understand how the trauma has changed your thoughts and feelings. This way you can start, like, internally understanding how you have changed. Because if you remember, we talked about the fact that this traumatic event changes you. And I'm not suggesting here at all to anyone that... You can't change back. It, it has happened. But I do know that the sooner you recognize what the problem is, the sooner you can figure out ways to stop it, to manage it. Maybe even in some ways, and I mean this in a positive way, I don't mean this in a denial way, to, to avoid it. You know, it's with, it's what John Nash did when he had a psychotic break. This is the, the mathematician that won the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, he literally was seeing visions, they were talking to him, and uh, all kinds of stuff because of all the intense mathematics he was doing, and, and I guess he had a genetic disposition for this. He, he had a totally ent entire psychotic break, and he'd have them on a regular basis. I mean, when many he's teaching mathematics or doing some incredible calculations for some important project, and next thing you know, you know he's talking like to ghosts and people and, and having conversations with nobody that's there, but they're there in his head. That was part of his therapy. So it's very similar to that. Instead of going in denial, this hasn't happened to me, no. Instead of, uh, oh, the heck with that, no. Your mind is, isn't a stupid device, okay? Your mind is a super intelligent device. Even your mind will figure out ways to screw with you further if you ignore what it's trying to say to you. So his therapy was... Yeah, I, I see you there. I acknowledge that you're there, but we're not going to have a conversation because I'm in this life. I got things I want to do right now. I know you're there. I know you're never going to go away, but I'm going to deal with this stuff. That was a way to almost acknowledge it and then sort of put it to the side at the same time. Not a denial, but not giving in to this stuff either. That's how he was able to bring himself back to sanity, to where he didn't have as many uh, incredibly enough, the brain didn't give him as many psychotic breaks because it, it was almost like it's saying, oh, we can't get this guy anymore. Lord, I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, because it, the condition almost makes your brain an enemy in a way for a while. And you got to fight back in ways that make sense to get back to your reality, get back to your life. You know, because all those other things around you are affected. Your job and your wife and your children and all the other things. And that's what he did. There's a great movie about it. They get a great, great job. Probably one of the best jobs I've ever seen in any kind of picture whatsoever to explain how those sort of things can happen. And there's a lot that he went through that people go through in general, whether it might be PTSD or depression or bipolar. There's many of these mental health issues that they have some similar situations and also some of the things that he learned or some of the things that you can employ yourself for that. 
It works. And that's how you get people back to where they belong in this reality rather than off in some other planet over there someplace not being very helpful to themselves or to others. Sometimes even being harmful to themselves and others. Not realizing what's going on. So this sort of thing works. All right, so that's one of them right there. All right, the next one over here is what they call prolonged exposure. It's, uh, it's, it's more of a, I wouldn't say experimental, but it's more of a cutting edge type of situation. And they really have to evaluate the person carefully, and you really have to have a really good idea of where you're coming from on this. If you are ready through other types of therapy, or maybe even through your own self-examination, have identified certain things that you believe will trigger. Remember before we talked about, you know, the bus, oh, I can't see the bus, it's going to just mess me up. Well, there could be other things. There could be certain smells, there could be certain things. If you've identified that, and let's say it's, it's a small list or maybe just a couple of things, well, the prolonged exposure therapy is very helpful because it'll help you to get personally involved in those things with the understanding that they could trigger something and start dealing with how it triggers with you and, and figure out how to manage and, and get through that. It's almost like the only way you're going to get through the storm is if you walk in it instead of walking away from it. So that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's the, the thinking and the intentions behind it. It's simply you face it directly. This way, no matter when something like this happens, because remember, you might be able to avoid things that you know in advance. You know, uh, I'm not going to turn this block because I know there's a bunch of buses over there, but I'm going on this block because there's a bunch of cars. Well, you might have a situation to happen that you, you don't expect. You, you can't plan. What do you do then? Hmm? That's what this sort of thing would help, the prolonged exposure, because by being exposed to it a lot and by dealing with it, when it does come up to you by surprise, you're not suddenly, you know, hesitant and you just stalled out and you go into an automatic depression and you know you, you start becoming uh, less reliable and, and, and you have the anxiety attacks and all of that you don't because you're like I've dealt with this before this is how I'm going to handle this don't matter if it came to me unexpected or not guess what I've been waiting for you and that's what that does and that's that's a great thing because it's a therapy like I said it only works for certain people under, the, under certain conditions but it does work, and it works in, in a very successful manner, I believe, for the people I talk to. All right, another one is, and one I, I employed myself and then I use right now with veterans. Um, they have a lower, a lower, I guess you could say, a threshold of depression, and, and some of them just have your basic trauma from the PTSD. Uh, but writing is therapy, where people learn, and I did this myself in the military, and I, like I said, I wrote a book, and a paper on it, and, and, and I teach it now as well, is you use this as a way to start, to start understanding what caused this so you can now face it. It's not the same thing as prolonged exposure because it's not like an exercise in uh, here's the bus coming and this is how I'm going to manage this and da-da-da. It's, it's more about investigating what it was and who you are at the moment. Because guess what? Lots of people who go through this sort of thing, particularly when they're in the arts, and we're going to talk further about that in a moment, they're in a different place in their life at the moment when they're ready to get something done to, to help you know repair this and to help for them to live with it than they were when it first happened because there's been a time period where they ignored it or they were in denial or they handled it poorly. 
you know, like what a lot of people do with depression, drink, use drugs, think sleeping with 98,000 women, somehow it's all going to make it go away. No, you're only adding more problems to your situation. And when I say that, I don't mean to call women problems. I just mean that, you know, having mindless sex isn't going to fix your, your post-stress situation. It's just not. Well, you know, sex is good for my stress. Yeah, in a basic way, but not in this sort of way where it's going to be there. It's, it's not going to make it go away. It's not the temporary stress of a bad day. You're talking about post-stress. You're talking about a traumatic event. Sex isn't going to do anything for you in that. In fact, if anything, like I said, it winds up getting you more messed up because you got women looking at you like, what kind of weirdo is this guy? You know, there you go. So you're not helping yourself. You're making things worse. You know, and, and you're really in that situation where you don't feel the best about yourself. So having 98,000 women say you're a jerk, walk away from you or slap you in the face or something, I don't know how that helps you. So that's why I say that. So by using a journal where people will write down stuff that they can remember and or the some things that they don't want to actually utter in their in their mouth, but they'll write it down. It helps them, almost like a, a form of a religious confession where they feel that the more they can get out, the more they might be able to uh, learn to forgive themselves. A lot of this, I'm sorry to say, whether it's fair or not, comes down to self-forgiveness because even the rape victim, I remember reading the interview of that woman I was telling you about, she she bought into what a lot of society has said. Well, um, I'm not saying, young lady, you deserved it, but you brought it on to yourself because you went on vacation by yourself instead of bringing somebody. I don't know. What is she supposed to bring her brother with you? And who the hell says that, you know, they don't bop him over the head and they still do this to her? Who's to say that they don't take him out for drinks and she goes off in her business and it still happens to her? Who's to say they don't kill him and this still happens to her? So it, that kind of thinking is stupid and judgmental and useless. And this is why a lot of people, they feel like they've done something to deserve this. And I'm telling you right now, uh, you didn't do anything to deserve this. As a, as a rape victim, you didn't deserve anything this when you had to kill somebody in combat because that was the choice that you had at the moment. You do that or you're gone or your men are in trouble. You do what you have to do. But then you have people later on, and I've discovered this from having sessions with lots of people, that a huge portion of the trauma is not necessarily the act itself but their feelings about the act itself. So it wasn't, even for that rape victim, she said the most unusual thing. I don't feel the damage from the rape. I feel the damage of how I am handling it. Because, you know, remember she was handling it by hiding it from the world. You know, the only people who knew about the rape was her, the rapist, and God. That was it. Nobody else. So... Sometimes, when that guilt is there, whether it's real or imagined, whether it is something that's correct or not, because, you know, you can do things that can cause a traumatic event that you might have been responsible for. Let's say, like, um, you know, you're driving a car and you're driving it recklessly and you wind up having a horrible accident and hurting yourself badly and hurting other people badly. You, you, you're responsible for that. So that's understandable why you would have that guilt. But for many people, there's nothing they could have done to prevent this. And they, but they still feel it's on them. Somehow they could have done something different. If I only ran faster, the tornado would have never swept me up. Come on now, really? 
just like her, believing that stupid things from society. When she got around that crap and realized that was baloney, well, then she was able to get back her life because there was nothing she could have done that would have prevented that. Not one thing at all. I mean, other than just locking yourself in the house and never leaving. You know, because if you want perfect safety first, you could do that. You destroy your own life that way. Nothing bad will happen to you because you already done something bad. You made yourself a prisoner of paranoia and fear. But the confession can make that sort of stuff come out. And maybe in that way you can start figuring out why you feel this way. I find that a lot of people, even when they finally realize it wasn't their fault, they still feel somehow that they have to forgive themselves. Even if it's just because they were thinking wrong about the entire event. And I'm okay with it, because you, you can't get too technical with people. When they get through to that point, you, you let, them, let them be what they have to be. I mean, don't let them think wrong, and you do your best to counsel them, but if they really feel that a, a, a measure of self-forgiveness is, is going to help them, why not explore it then? As long as they understand that they're giving themselves some room and they're not trying to play into the fact that, you know, they're going to suddenly carry guilt for the rest of their life. Because the whole point of, of writing therapy and to get through this sort of stuff is sort of to dispense some of that stuff, if not all of it. At least enough of it that you can manage your life a lot better. Okay? Because I understand the shooter in the military sense that they feel morally responsible for having to kill somebody in combat. I don't have a problem understanding that at all. Because you can't run away from the fact that you were there, you joined the service, you pulled the trigger, you killed that person. You can't live in that denial because that's just nonsense. I got that. It's just a different dimension when you morally say, you know, I'm a killer. I'm a murderer. I'm a bad person. I'm going to hell. And that's that's something we got to work on. <laughs> therapy and writing therapy and whatever kind of therapy you want to talk about because that's where it becomes damaging. Because, yeah, you're responsible for killing that person. But guess what? You actually had a moral reason to do so, whether it be in the defense of yourself or, or your nation or even your troops that were with you. That's not an excuse it's a legitimate reason. It's one of the few legitimate reasons that killing is, is permissible to the human mind and to the human soul. And that's pretty much it. There's really, I mean, other than eating an animal, you have to kill it. That's about it. Other than that, there's not too many other good reasons for it. But some people, they get that mixed up, or it, it just becomes a damaging thing for them. They forget important things that the person they killed still have some responsibility in, even in their act. They came rushing at you. They were shooting at you. They're over there wanting to kill you too. They're not going to be coming over the hill to give you a Hallmark card, okay? They're not coming over to share family photos. Hey, man, check this out. It's too bad about this war, huh? No. That's, that's in the, I think that might be a part of a Greenpeace video or something, but in terms of the reality of it all, uh, no. It doesn't mean that Killing is this wonderful thing. There's nothing romantic or sexy about it. In fact, there's nothing noble about it at all. It damages who we are as human beings. Regardless of how legitimate that situation might have been, it's still damaging. 
And I don't mean just in terms of PTSD. I mean just in terms of the spirituality of a human being. If you ever talk to somebody who's had to kill people more than once in combat, it takes a toll. It takes therapy. It takes a lot to get through that person. And it takes a lot for that person to want to continue on in life and want to continue on and do something that they feel is positive and productive because, you know, killing, unfortunately, is not necessarily a, a normal act. We brought it on ourselves by having to do this, and it does have consequences. And you do your best with the, with the military people under these circumstances. God knows I've talked to plenty, so I can completely understand. I like the writing as therapy mainly because you're not spending a whole lot of time and money and, and you're scheduling on seeing some psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist for 60 minutes and like, oh, yeah, that was the 60th minute, Mr. Johnson. We'll have to resume this next Wednesday. You know, we don't have to have those kind of moments. They're at a, a VA center and it takes what it takes. Sometimes people, they have other things they have to do. Maybe they got to cut out of the class. You know, and other people, they're making a breakthrough or they're saying something important and we all can continue to listen. But it's powerful and it's constructive. Now, in the arts, as we talked about in the past, plenty of people have dealt with this sort of situation and continue to do with it, whether they may be painters or actors or all kinds of various celebrities. Now, one of the reasons, and I'm sorry to have to say this because I don't enjoy having to say this, but one of the reasons why we still have a real stigma about mental health, especially in America, is because of celebrities. They have abused this in many instances. And, and, and instead of using it to help announce to the world that it's out there and people can get help and etc., oftentimes for many celebrities, it's just an excuse for their crappy behavior or their stupid, irresponsible things they do. You know, I didn't mean to slug my wife, but I've been dealing with depression. How, how lovely. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, I ran into those 18 people when I was drunk, but, you know, I'm having a bipolar situation. I kind of kept it on a down low because, uh, you know, I don't want to miss out on my $17 million movie roles. Yeah, thank, thanks for, for being brave. So this sort of thing amongst people, if you ever talk to people about this, they, they tell you. They tell you that they wonder how true mental illness is. How far does it go? Is it an excuse? Is it a, a crutch that people use no different than drugs or other things? And unfortunately, it happens a lot, and it happens more in the celebrity world than it does anywhere else, mainly because lots of us regular people, okay, uh, we don't get a chance to hide behind all this stuff. We don't get to go to 25,000 a month clinics, you know, to hide away from until the bad news cycle is gone. We don't get to do stuff like that because we don't have 25000 a month to spend on some dopey place that, you know, they does, does meditation and you talk about Buddha all day and, and you're just drying out. Are you getting any real help? Probably not, other than you're just not drinking anymore for a while. But that's it. That, that, that weighs on people because it, it makes them think that this stuff is baloney. And it makes people think that every time someone says like this, something like this, it's suspect. We've seen it so often in courtrooms that uh, I, I know people, especially when they're jurors, they're like, you know, I know it sounds prejudicial, but, you know, someone starts talking about having flashbacks and nightmares. 
I'm wondering if he's guilty right there. Is that a fair thing to say? No, it's not. But guess what? They've heard that sort of stuff so many times that just people don't take it seriously anymore. You know? They take, in life, racism and homophobia. And even the, the people who are just nasty and discriminatory against disabled, they take that a lot more serious. It's harder in, in many ways to disguise that. You can't pretend you're black, you know, if you're really black. You can't pretend you're gay if you're really gay. You're certainly in the wheelchair. You know, you're not, you're not out there doing the Olympics, okay, unless they're the Special Olympics. So people are going to take that more seriously. Where mental illness, it's, it's deep inside, and, and, and it's visible in many ways. And so it's easy for all kinds of people to say that sort of stuff. So I, I think it really harms many people who really do have these mental health issues. You know, and, and I, I really hate that because that, that this makes the, the world that much more difficult for people that are already having to deal with difficult things. But that's the truth that's out there. And I thought it was important to mention that, especially in the arts, that we make sure that in many instances that we, when we have to talk about it and when we have to deal with it, that we do it not only in, in an intelligent manner, but we try to give context to it as much as possible. I'm not really one to say that we're supposed to be sensitive about everything in the universe because we're human. We're not going to be able to be doing that, okay? But I do know that it's important to try to do our best to restrict some of our language that just simply is harmful, you know what I mean? Saying, you know, saying somebody is off their rocker, it, it, it doesn't help anything. What the hell does that really mean? They're different than you are? Okay, so if you're saying that, what are you, are you saying that? I'm going to hate people who are different? I'm going to treat people who are different? Who, I'm going to treat them different because they're different? Because if you're breaking on down, you're not saying a whole lot about yourself as much as you might be saying something about someone else. Because guess what? For a moment there in time, that person could be dealing with something right there that normally they don't have to deal with. You want to just quote about that moment. It's horrible for them, and maybe in a way it's horrible for you. But it's important that people learn about this. And I really wish that we had more, more shows or more movies that, that talked a little bit more about that. Now, I'm not one of those people that advocate that we're supposed to fill up every movie and every TV show with whatever cause of the week that we got out there. Because you won't have art anymore, entertainment. You just have a bunch of commercials for propaganda. And that's not really helpful, especially in a free society. You know? A lot of these things that we're dealing with right now, whether it might be racism or, you know, people hating gays or, you know, people hating Jews or people hating people with mental illnesses or something, is affairs of the heart. The things that the human condition still needs to go through to understand. We, we can't make it happen any faster. It takes time. I mean, think about it now. From the year 2021 to even when I went into the Air Force in 1984, okay? Just the years in between the difference. We've come so far in many ways on racism. We've come a great deal on, on gays. And I'm telling you, when I was joking with somebody about doing the interview and they mentioned that, I'm like, it, it's... It's a practically passe. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's, there's moments and there are times and there are people that act stupid towards gays, but it's not such a, a big surprise anymore. We all know that you can have a beer with a gay person and you're not suddenly become gay. We all know that these are just silly thoughts that, that make no more sense, and we're not going to cling to them. But that took time, 
Okay? And I'm sure the person that's been getting beat up when they're getting in 1984, you know, and you're going to tell them, hey, listen, about 35 years, man, the world's going to be a lot better. It's not really helping them at that moment when in 35 more minutes they're going to get beat up again by somebody on the street because they get marked as being gay. But nevertheless, that's the truth of humanity. We take a long time to understand, to digest, and to move in the right direction. As you can't really speed it up that much. We got too many people that they want to do that right now, and, and they, they, they find that it doesn't have any real effect. We've put all this stuff into schools for years now. I remember in my school they put it, they called it ethnic studies. I can tell you right now, before I even have the left of high school, that I didn't see anybody changing their view about racial minorities. I wish they did. But it was all about where they were raised and how they were raised. That's really what put that in them. It wasn't going to come out so easily. It certainly wasn't going to come out in a 45-minute class. Sounded wonderful on paper. Didn't do very much. I'm sure the school looked really cool when they had to go before somebody. See, we're trying to combat racism with this class. That's great. Maybe you should have a class for parents and tell them to stop being jerks about this issue and let the kids decide on their own by associating with people What's what's going on out there versus you telling them these groups stink and this and that. You might have had a class for parents that probably would have made more sense than some of the dopey things they've done in school. And we keep trying to do this to this day with all kinds of different things in school. It doesn't work. Really, it doesn't work. And it's never going to work because you can't, with the law, legislate people's hearts about how they're going to feel about things. You're not going to educate them out there. You honestly think that somebody who hates gay people Okay, it is going to sit in the class and go, damn, I'm glad I took this class because now I realize that even though they might have sex different than me, they're just like me. They want to pay their taxes. They want to serve the country. They want to raise a family one day, maybe in a different fashion. But nevertheless, you know, they, they, they like movies. They like to go sports. So why do I hate these people for? It would be nice if a class could teach somebody to do that. It doesn't work that way. People have hatreds and people have fears. And in many instances, they have these traumatic events and they have these depressions for specific reasons. Okay? It's not a casual thing. You don't just wake up one day. Hey, Jack. Mom. Oh, I'm trying out, man. Um, I'm going to hate gay people today, okay? I know it wasn't like that yesterday, but today I'm definitely going to do that. It doesn't work that way been taught to them. They've been in that kind of environment. They hear it a lot. They see it a lot. Eventually, they start thinking about it. Hey, I think I might be right about that. That's how it works. It, it, it's a kind of a, a, a brainwashing on a layaway plan <laughs> when you're growing up right? or you're in certain communities. That's, what, that's how it happens. And to unlearn that and to unthink that and to see things as they really are, well, that can take a lifetime. And you know, lots of people who advocate for wanting all this stuff to stop, and that, that's, that's one of their problems. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to face that, that that's what's actually going on. And that getting mad at the people and calling them names, or trying to make the laws different, or, or try to make the schools better, and all those other things is somehow it, it's going to have an impact, and, and it's not. It's simply not. It takes time. All right, folks, uh, hopefully that, that, that has really helped you out a, a great deal about um, post-traumatic stress disorder, especially depression in, in the arts and in, in people in, in general. As writers, 
we have to understand that our particular group of people have a huge, huge burden of mental illness on us. Writers can often suffer mental illness up to 45% of the ones that are out there. I, I actually know few writers that are not dealing with it on some sort of basis, some form of it. And I'm sorry to say, because I'm not one that likes to throw everything in the, you know, in, in the sink and you know, call it something. Uh, even, even writers block when you have people that, that they're not writing for a, a month or two or something. And it's because they had something traumatic happen to them. On even a smaller scale like that, that is still a post-stress situation because it could be the death of a, somebody very close to you, could be a breakup romantically that you have taken it super hard. You know, it happens. You know, I, I know somebody that uh, they stopped writing for a couple of months because their pet, who they had through all kinds of things, thick and thin, you know, died. So it's it's not like these things don't happen to us on, on a regular basis. With writers, we have a lot more to worry about because we are so active in our minds and because we are so vocal in our voices when we try to write and because, in many instances, uh, we're, we're more out there socially than, than a lot of people are. I know the stereotype of writer is, you know, you're in a dark closet somewhere with a with a candle and, you know, the spirit of Notre Dame is on one end and Link, Abraham Lincoln is on the other end and you're over there writing something. It's, it's just a silly stereotype. <laughs> Most people are pretty out, outgoing, actually. Uh, they might be outspoken, too, and they could even be a little annoying. I know I, I've heard that about myself sometimes, so I don't mind throwing myself out there that way, but... We're not so, we're not so cloistered. We're not so cliquish, and we're, and we're not so, uh, you know, antisocial that we're not going to have some of these things happen to us. And these are some of the ways that I wanted to bring out on this particular show that's out there, just to acknowledge that it's out there, to acknowledge that you don't have to have some specific form of depression to not also have some of the same situations happen in your life. It doesn't have to be a formal diagnosis, okay? You don't have to have some big Latin name and take some drug that has 17 letters in it or something, okay? Sometimes it's just a matter of working it out in yourself, and it can be done. So check out um, many of the shows we talked about this. You can listen to this again. I wrote a book about it, uh, Writing as Therapy, Tools to Treat Trauma. You can pick that up and you know check that out. It gives you some some lesson plans and some of the things I do with, with, with veterans. It definitely can apply to, to other people as well. But don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Please don't make fun of it. All right? Accept it and work with it. You'll have a better life. You'll have a happier life. More important though, you know, you get to be who you're supposed to be rather than just another victim out there. Because I'm telling you right now, we don't need any more victims, right? We, we, we need some more people that are like there saying, hey, I'm beating this in the butt because I'm not going to let it take my life over. I'm not going to let it steal my happiness. I'm not going to have my joy ransomed by, by some traumatic event from three years ago. So let's, let's stop being victims and stop being victors, all right? All right, folks, God bless. Until next time, this is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to Be Human. That was episode 210, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in the Arts. Until next time.
Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.